Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Modern students are apt to see going to college as the way to earn a credential that'll help them get a good job. But as Andrew Del Banco, professor of American Studies at Columbia University, argues in his book, College, What It Was, Is, and Should Be, higher education was developed for a different purpose, one it should fight to maintain. Today on the show, Andrew shares how he decided to write his book to understand more about the history, nature, and value of an institution which has come under increasing pressure in the modern age. Andrew describes how America's earliest colleges were founded as places where students can learn from both their teachers and from each other, and thereby develop the capacity to grow in character, serve others, live a good life, and even face death. Andrew explains why colleges have largely abandoned this mission and makes the case for why a broad, not entirely specialized liberal arts education remains relevant in an age in which the ability to grapple with life's big questions is as crucial as ever. We also talk about the difference between colleges and universities, and no, they're not synonymous, why a prospective student might choose the former over the latter, and what other things those contemplating where to go to school should consider when making the decision. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash college. Andrew Del Banco, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you got a book published over a decade ago. I can't believe it. It seems like not that long ago called College, What It Was, Is, and Should Be. What's the impetus behind this book? And I mean, what did you start noticing in colleges and universities? Because this is your business, you're, you're a professor, that caused you to take a look at the history of colleges to see, maybe there's something from the past we can learn on how to improve the college experience. Well, you know, it's my impression most faculty members are hired to focus on a special subject, engineering or English or whatever it may be. And then they wake up one day and they find they've spent 10, 20, 30 years, in my case, more than that by now, inside an institution that they don't know very much about. And I began to feel that I wanted to learn something about where the institution in which I spent my life first as a student, then as a teacher, came from. You know, every institution has a history, and usually we can learn something about where we are by figuring out where we've been. So I just got curious about the history of this thing that we call college, and I began to read about it, educate myself about it. And so I guess one answer to your question is just intellectual curiosity. The other one is that I, th- I think there's a general feeling, certainly it was there on my part, that this is an imperiled institution. It's a fragile institution. There's a lot of pressures on it from all kinds of directions, cultural, economic. And I think we, we have an obligation to understand its value and to defend it and to try to see that it has a fruitful future. So, so that's, that's something like an answer to your question. Yeah. I mean, you wrote this book right around the time of the Great Recession, and there was a lot of, I guess, hand-wringing and concern about students graduating college with enormous amounts of debt and right. there's no jobs. And we're still we're still having that conversation today. And so, yeah, that's one idea. I mean, we t- typically think of college as, well, it's a place you go so you can get a job. Right. Well, look, the student debt problem is a real problem, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding about it. A great deal of student debt is accrued in graduate school. A great deal is accrued by students who are attending uh, for-profit so-called universities. And I I use the term so-called because I think a lot of for-profit institutions are really masquerading as universities. And they take advantage of 
students and before you know it, you've accumulated a lot of debt and you have either no degree at all or a degree that isn't worth very much. Another reason that the cost of college has been going up so rapidly and students have had to borrow so much is that the states, by and large, have been disinvesting from public higher education. So the cost of educating students over the last several decades has been transferred in large part from the taxpayer to the student and the student's family. Now, it's a political argument as to whether that's justified or not, but it is a fact. I haven't mentioned the private sector, which is what a lot of people think of first when they think of college, you know, famous old institutions in the Northeast, like Ivy League institutions and so on. Those institutions, the level of student indebtedness is actually very low because those institutions are able to provide financial aid for students who need it. So it's a complicated picture, but it certainly is on the minds of a lot of people. And quite understandably, the cost of college has compelled people to ask hard questions about, you know, what am I investing in? What kind of return should I be expecting on my investment? What's the deliverable at the end of this process? And the answer to that question has changed a lot over our history, and that's one of the questions I try to explore in this book. Well, let's talk about that, because I think that's the big question that people ask. Like, what, am I, what am I going to college for, exactly? And it's funny, I took my son to a, a football camp at the University of Oklahoma a couple months ago. That's where I graduated from. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful campus, but I was, as I was walking around... I was like, this is really, if you can think about it, it's kind of weird. Uh, this idea we cordon young people off from the community. We create a sort of a community within a community for a few years where all they can do is focus on learning. And we build big, giant, beautiful buildings and libraries, and then there's football stadiums and all this stuff. And so you think about it, how did this happen? Like, how, where did this idea of college, where we take young people for four years of their lives and we just make it a small little community, how did that? Get it start. I mean, let's start there. I think that's interesting to explore. Well, it's a great question, and therefore there's no real quick, easy answer. First thing to say, I think, is that the kind of college you're describing is almost unique to the United States. That is a place where young people roughly between the ages of 18 and 22, let's say, go, as you say, to be cordoned off from the world to some extent, to live in a community of other young people, roughly the same age, and live in the place where they study and grow up. That's an idea that is quite unfamiliar in most of the world, where most people who go on beyond secondary school to to university, you know, they live in town, they go and listen to the lectures, they, they may have a friend's group, but there's nothing like residential campus life in most other countries. So what we take for granted in this country is actually very strange in the eyes of the rest of the world, particularly, you mentioned the football stadium, particularly big college sports, which is a completely foreign idea in most countries. But specifically, where so where did this uniquely American institution of the residential college, which is what we're talking about right now, and we don't want to forget that most American students do not attend such institutions. We'll get back to that. Where did this idea of a residential college come from? And the answer is pretty straightforward. It came from England. It came from the colleges of those ancient universities, Oxford and Cambridge, where 
young men, and they were, of course, only men in those days, came together initially to prepare for careers as ministers and divinity by and large, and spent three rather than four years literally behind locked gates so that they were separated from the outside world. And that idea of the residential college got transferred to what became our country in the early 17th century in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when Harvard College was founded, our oldest college. And in fact, the founders of the college, it's very interesting to read their their mission statement that they published when they opened the college. They said very specifically, we want students here to grow up in what they called the collegiate way. And if you you think about that word, collegiate, related to collegial, collegium, community, they wanted students to learn from each other and to live with each other. They wanted the I guess you could say the the boundary line between study and life to be a blurry one. It's not that you came in to study and then you went back into the world, but you came into a whole world that was about study, gaining in self-knowledge was the hope, developing a character committed to public service because most of these students were initially trained to be either ministers or school teachers. So they very explicitly designed this college in contrast to the uh, European university where students kind of dropped in to pick up some information and then dropped out again. So it was almost a monastic experience they were trying to create. Yeah, well, monastic, it's tempting to go to that analogy. There, there is something like a, a convent or a retreat or a monastery, but I can assure you that students never behave monastically. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things you realize when you start reading about the ancient colleges of Oxford and Cambridge and early Harvard and early Yale is that a lot of the things we think are uh, indicative of a decline in, in uh, student morals today uh, have always been true, uh, right down to food fights, riots over the quality of the college food, being out after hours when the gates were locked and your friends had to figure out a way to smuggle you back in putting on wild parties, all of that stuff has always been part and parcel of the college experience. Now, I think you noted some experiences from the past, and I've read this too, of like just outright riots that were happening on the campuses over something, and they would go and attack the president's house, you know, throw rocks through his window, and the next day the president would get up, give give a lecture in front of these hooligans who had just pelted his house with rocks. Yeah, I think over the long sweep of history, today's college students are actually relatively better behaved than their predecessors were. But back then in colleges, the early colleges, they took that into account, that the fact that young people were still rough around the edges, they were works in progress, so they were malleable. So when you look at the founding documents of these early colleges, a lot of it was about character building. Like they said, we're making this college to develop the character of these students while they're here with us so they can go out and do good in the world. So, you know, that was the purpose, character development. Did the curriculum, or how how did the curriculum of these early colleges reflect that purpose? Well, you know, I referred earlier to the mission statement of Harvard College, which came out about 1638. It was not only a mission statement, it was also, you might say, the first fundraising brochure in the history of American higher education. They wrote a document and sent it back to their Puritan allies in England and said, hey, 
we need your help. We need your support to maintain this college. And in that document, there's a beautiful line that's always struck me with great force. They say the purpose of this college, I'm paraphrasing now, is to ensure that we do not leave an illiterate ministry. We do not leave an illiterate ministry to the people when our present ministers lie in the dust. Okay? So the mission there was very explicit, was to prepare the next generation in the face of the inevitability of death, to prepare the next generation to carry on the Christian ministry to the people of New England. Simple as that. Now, the mission, of course, grew enormously. And if if you ask today what's the mission of that particular institution, there'd be 150,000 different missions. But in that original mission, I think, is that implication that we are here to help people cope with the trials and tribulations of life, to understand how to live a virtuous life, how to serve other people, and how to face death when that moment comes. That's a pretty tall order, but I think that's at the heart of what the original mission was all about. But on this subject, I mean, you know, it's one thing when most American colleges belong to one Christian denomination or another, and those early ones were all Protestant. So in fact, the process of Harvard becoming Yale and Yale becoming Princeton was a sort of schismatic process, the way churches break up when some part of the congregation isn't happy with the minister or what's going on. They'll go off and form a church of their own. That's essentially how the early colleges proliferated. But in that era that lasted throughout the colonial period and into the first half of the 19th century, most colleges were explicitly Christian institutions. And indeed, most college presidents until the late 19th century were clerics. They were ministers. So in that context, people felt relatively confident in how to answer the question of what does it mean to develop a good character? It meant to be a believing Christian who lived according to the precepts of whatever particular brand of Christianity was at home in the particular college. We now obviously live in an era where that criterion no longer applies. Some people might miss it, but there's no going back whether one wants to or not. We live in an era where there's a great, I hardly need to point this out to you or your listeners, There's a great deal of debate, dispute, argument, and even animosity and hatred over basic questions such as how should people behave in their private sexual lives? Where should the line be drawn between ambition as a good thing and greed as a bad thing? What does a good life look like? What does it mean to commit to a family? What does a family look like? You know, there are as many answers to those questions now as there are thinking people in our country. And therefore, for any institution to say, we're here to 
train you to be such and such a kind of person, it's still possible for institutions to do that. And there are some institutions that define good character rather narrowly. But most of the more visible colleges in our country are trying to accommodate a great diversity of points of view, people from all walks of life, different religious and cultural traditions, different ethnic and racial identities, and to try to help them create some kind of workable community where people can agree at least on the basic elements of what it means to be a citizen, a neighbor, and a productive member of our diverse and heterogeneous society. That's a tall order. That's very hard work. For that reason, I think most colleges have more or less given up on it. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. I think, I think we should be trying harder to continue to help young people find their way uh, through life with some sense of who they are and who they want to be. Is that probably why now into you know college today there's less of a I mean they still talk about we're here to develop the the whole person the character but because there's we don't there's no single shared telos right because we're they they can't really it has to be very vague so as a consequence universities and colleges today I think it's typically why we see it like well college is a way where you can get a credential so you can go and work it's sort of the economic part is what's emphasized instead of the the character part because it's it's easier you can say well you get a degree you can get a job right right well and and look it's it's also it's not only easier in a sense it's also completely understandable i mean one of the great success stories in american history is the way in which we have opened up college to incredibly larger portion of our population than than the founders of those institutions would ever have imagined. I mean, we've made it almost universally available, and that's a great thing. One of the results of that, of course, is that college is no longer the preserve of, of affluent people who don't have to worry about what they're going to do after college. It's a place filled with young people who, as we said earlier, have taken on debt or their families have made financial sacrifices. So most everyone who goes to college legitimately has on their mind the question is, okay, I'm going to get this degree after four years. How am I going to make that into a marketable credential? What's it going to bring me at the end of the, at the, end of the process? And that's a very legitimate question, particularly for young people who come from families who don't have a lot of resources. What I regret, and I guess you asked me at the beginning of the conversation, why did I write this book? And I suppose it's a little bit of a sermon in its own in its own way. What I regret is that even as our colleges work hard to prepare students for productive working lives, you're going to be an engineer, or you're going to be a healthcare worker, or you're going to be a computer programmer, or whatever it may be, we shouldn't give up on that other aspect of the college experience. We can't, we shouldn't, I think, be telling students this is the right way to live and this, that's the wrong way to live. But we should be giving students an opportunity to ask those questions, not just privately, silently, in their own minds, which all students do to one extent or another, I believe, 
but to have conversations about those kinds of questions with their peers, with their contemporaries. And colleges could do a better job of fostering and facilitating those kinds of conversations, some of which can happen outside the classroom and do happen outside the classroom, of course, but some of which could and should happen inside the classroom. And that that's what we used to call, we still call it that, but it doesn't have much meaning anymore in most places. We used to call it general education, right? We made a distinction between the major, the special field where you got a credential that said you knew how to do X or Y, and general education, which was supposed to broaden your horizons, deepen your imagination, open your mind to the experience of other people, not only in the contemporary world, but people in the past. You know, it, it's often said the past is, a, is another country, and it's not, a, it's not a country that anybody can visit except by reading about it. And yet, by studying the past, which is a large part of what college used to be about, one gets a, a sense that, you know what, the world doesn't actually have to look exactly the way it does today. It has been different. There some, some societies have been run by monarchs or tyrants. Other societies have tried to make democracy work. Other societies have done a mixture of the two. Some societies believe in re- the radical principle of free speech to be protected at all costs. Other societies have strict limits around what individuals are permitted to say in public and penalties applied if they say something that government disapproves of. It's helpful to know that human beings have organized themselves in different ways over time and that we collectively have a choice about how we want our society to be in 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now. Those are the kinds of questions that I think belong in the curriculum of every college, whether it's a nursing program or an engineering school, or for those very small and dwindling number of students who want to become professors when they grow up. Everybody should have a chance to think about these kinds of questions. And so I hope that in the years ahead, educators will make a greater effort in that direction and parents will understand that that's a legitimate and important part of their children's college experience as well. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. The Peloton Bike and Bike Plus are ringing in the new year with so much new. New classes, new music, new ways to keep your workouts fun and motivating. And now Peloton is stepping into the ring with its newest discipline, boxing. No gloves needed. Discover a fast, furious, and fun workout with Peloton instructors in your corner. Even if you never boxed before, these classes will have you working up a sweat while you're working on the fundamentals of form, footwork, and fun combos that will keep you on your toes. Peloton has a workout for every goal, day, and mood. Stay motivated while having fun with bike workouts, yoga, meditation, dance, cardio, and more. So I've tried at the Peloton a few times. I've really enjoyed my experience there. My favorite workouts are the boot camp style workouts where you're doing some cycling, getting off, doing some dumbbell work, some calisthenics. Great hit workout. I'm looking forward to checking out the boxing. Uh, that looks like a lot of fun too. For a limited time, try the Peloton app for free for two months, then $12.99 per month after. New members only, visit onepeloton.com slash app to learn more. That's two months free at onepeloton.com. Offer expires January 31st, 2022. Terms apply. Check it out today. Are you ready to establish your online presence but not sure where to start? Look no further than Squarespace. 
Squarespace empowers the dreamers, makers, and doers of the world by providing the tools they need to bring their creative ideas to life. On Squarespace's dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and market your brand. Squarespace's products combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your online presence. If you're intimidated by the idea of launching your ideas in the world, Squarespace's templates take out all the guesswork and make it seamless. And once you're out there, you can use Squarespace's analytics to gain powerful insights about your site. And if you ever have questions, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I've used Squarespace over the years for one-off projects when I need to get a website up fast. Super easy, got it done in like 10 minutes. It's time to turn your dreams into reality. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com manliness and code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Yeah, I think that's a, a big point you see throughout the book is as you look back to the past, you see that at the beginning, the curriculum was very interconnected, interdisciplinary. There wasn't a lot of specialization. The math was connected to the philosophy and the philosophy was connected to the science. So the idea was to give a student a general liberal arts education. So one trend that's happened, so okay, let's talk about one trend that's happened. We mentioned the the shift from focusing on character development to the economics because that's just it's understandable that colleges had to do that because we're a diverse, heterogeneous society. The other shift has been more from general education to a very specific or specialized instruction. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of smart people long before this conversation have pointed out that one of the characteristics of the modern world is the relentless trend toward increasing specialization. Technology, for example, on the one hand, it's supposed to make life easier and simpler and more manageable, but creating new technology, even learning how to use new technology is a specialized skill. Science, which has become the uh, center of intellectual life in so many ways where the, where, where the exciting discoveries are being made and where we can feel its presence in our everyday lives. The scientific knowledge is expanding at an incredibly rapid rate. So there's no way that even the smartest young person can be a, an omniscient, all-knowing, Renaissance man, scientist, like, say, Isaac Newton was, or, or Galileo. The student has to focus on a particular field, whether it's biology or physics or the new growing field of neuroscience. And there are innumerable number of specialized courses that you have to complete en route to a degree in any one of those fields. And that's just the first degree, right? That's the BA degree or the, or the Bachelor of Science degree. So the pressure of specialization is everywhere on all of us all the time. And it has the effect of crowding out space for reflecting on broader questions, of just taking a pause, taking a breath, putting the textbook or the problem set aside and experiencing being alive and, and asking yourself what you want to do with this opportunity to be alive. Those questions are not very evident in the college curriculum anymore. Although every once in a while, somebody will, like at Yale, they had a famous course called Happiness. 
And it was, you know, jammed with, I think, a thousand students wanted to take it. At Harvard, they have a course called Justice, which is very popular with students. So students have an appetite to confront these big questions, even as they know they have to prepare themselves, you know, to take the LSAT exam if they want to go to law school or the MCAT if they want to go to medical school or or whatever the special focus may be. They still crave that opportunity to ask the big humanistic questions. And I think colleges ought to be doing a better job of giving them that opportunity. And so that's the value of a liberal arts education, even in the 21st century. It allows you to think about what does it mean to be a human and what does it mean to live the good life? And so you mentioned it, it's getting harder to teach that stuff because, I mean, it's often those general ed courses or liberal arts courses, they're kind of given the short shrift. It's just like, well, I just got to get through this. Right. That's how the students perceive it. But then also there's something going on on the, the college level. There's another change we can talk about. So you mentioned the early colleges in the United States, they were you know very small, cozy, collegial. You wanted to have this intimate relationship with your teacher when you have these discussions. But throughout the 19th century, things started getting bigger. And we shifted from like a college to a university system. I think that's some people, that's, that's something to be interesting to explore. I think when we throw around college and university, we use them as synonyms. Right. But they're not. They're different. Walk us through the difference there. Well, that, no, I, I think that's right. We use those two words interchangeably. You know, Sally is going off to Williams and Johnny is going off to uh, Wisconsin. In the first case, it's a college. In the second case, it's a university. But we make no distinction in our mind. There's a big distinction. And I, I would try to boil it down this way. First of all, a university is a much more complex institution that does a lot of things. It conducts research. It trains graduate and professional students for for the professions. And the college that may exist inside the university is t- tends to be a rather subsidiary entity within this larger thing. But on a more abstract level, what a university is about fundamentally is the production of new knowledge. Now, that's most evident in the sciences where we understand nature better and better with every passing year. But it's also true in history where historians discover new aspects of the past and and propose new interpretations of the past based on the research that they do in the archives and so on and so forth. A college has a very different function. A college is about the transmission of knowledge to young people, not not in the sense that it's a static body of knowledge that's never going to change, but in the sense that, okay, you know, this is what we as as a culture have learned about ourselves and have learned about the world. And we want you to know the basics of this so that you can go out and contribute and change the world. That's that's a very different mission from the university mission. And the two tend to get tangled up together. And it's inevitable, I think, what you see over the last 125 years or so is that colleges are becoming more and more like universities. And there's some positives about that. But by and large, I think 
more is being lost than is being gained. The, the pressure on the college student to specialize earlier and earlier, the pressure on the college student to be able to say on the day when, when they walk through the door, this is going to be my major, this is going to be my career. That's the sort of university ethos. Whereas the, the taking the time to sit back and explore and reflect and figure out what makes you excited and taking the chance of studying something that you might not be very good at, but that you're curious about it. So you might get a bad grade that's going to bring your GPA down. Those opportunities have become narrower for college students than they were even when my generation was in college back in the uh, 1970s, a long time ago by now. So this is, this is a longstanding tension between college and university. And one thing young people can ask themselves when they're thinking about where they want to go to college is do they want to go to an institution that's inside a big university or do they want to go to a, a freestanding independent college where that university ethos may be a, a, a little lighter? That doesn't mean they won't get great science. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that pre-meds at liberal arts colleges do better than pre-meds at big universities. And of course, the faculty mostly hold PhD degrees, so they've all been in universities. But there's still something different about an independent college than a university. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the point I was getting at earlier is that professors, there's this pressure on professors that sort of at crosswinds. They're, they're trying to be a college professor where their job is to transmit knowledge. Yeah, at the same time, they have this pressure from the university crosswind saying, we need to create new knowledge. Right. Because, you know, universities use that in their, in their public relations. Like, hey, we've made this new discovery or even in the liberal arts or social sciences. And so college professors, I have professors, friends where they've complained about that. They, they want to focus on teaching, but they have this immense pressure to put out a new book or some, you know, a certain amount of articles and they feel like they can't, they can't do both very well. So it's sort of, Right. It just, it's sort of middling. Right. Well, this is one of the, it's a, it's a big distortion and it's a big problem. I mean, if you think about it, uh, people who become professors, they get a degree in graduate school and they earn that degree by doing research. Very little attention in graduate school is spent on helping you become a better teacher. It's almost an accident if you have a, an outstanding researcher who also is an outstanding teacher. It, it happens, but there's, there's no logical connection really between the two things. And then when they get to the college or the university, it's the rare institution that will provide incentives and rewards for people to really throw themselves into their teaching and give the time and attention that undergraduates need. And, and you know, we could talk for hours more about the trend toward online teaching and learning and what that's likely to do to the relationship between teachers and students. But at the end of the day, Students need attention. All students need it, especially those who are not as well prepared for college as others. And if we're going to ever do anything about our low graduation rates in this country, our poor success rates and our, the evidence of relatively limited learning that goes on in our colleges by and large, we have to strengthen this relationship between teachers and students. And that's a that's a very tall order, which um, it's easy for me as an out as a sort of outside 
commentator to, to call for it, it's a, it's a harder thing for a college president or dean or provost to make it happen. But it's, it's certainly, uh, certainly worth the effort. You know, if I, could, if I could say one other thing, Brett, to maybe, at least in my own mind, pull together some of the things we've been talking about. We all know that we're in the middle of this, and we're still in it, unfortunately, this uh, COVID-19 crisis. And it's very obvious that it is, in the first instance, a public health crisis. And it has also been an economic crisis, especially for less fortunate Americans who work in, as restaurant workers or retail workers or in meat meatpacking factories where COVID really took a high toll or places had to shut down. So it's all those things, it's public health crisis, or economic crisis, but it's also a values crisis because it has forced us to ask fundamental questions about individual liberty on the one hand and government authority on the other, right? All the debate and dispute we're witnessing right now over whether or not there should be a mask mandate, whether or not you should get the vaccine, to what extent is getting the vaccine something you should do for yourself? And to what extent is it something you should do in order to protect others around you, not just your loved ones, but also strangers whom you come into contact with? These are not scientific questions. These are not technical questions. These are humanistic values questions. I don't have answers to these questions. And I, and it's discouraging to me that we have so many public figures who are, are so shrill and, and certain that they have the right answers to these questions. My point is that we want the graduates of our colleges to be thoughtful, reflective people who are capable of thinking about these questions and not just having opinions about them based on what their parents told them or what they heard on this or that uh, talk show or TV network, but based on evidence, argument, as opposed to just opinionating and being willing to listen to people with a different point of view on these questions. All human questions are hard questions. And college is a place where students should begin to understand that and understand that they're going to spend the rest of their lives thinking about these questions, whether they want to or not. So I just wanted to put, put our conversation in that context. I hope that makes some sense. There'll be another crisis in five years or 10 years. We don't know what it'll look like, but I can assure you that it, once again, will not be a problem that's susceptible only to technical solutions. All human problems are values problems. And that's why we want to make sure that the humanities and general education, as I've been talking about it, continue to be a part of the college experience and that colleges don't just become training institutions to prepare people to perform certain kinds of functions. So sorry if that sounded like a sermon, but I feel pretty strongly about it. <laughs> no, so you're making the strong case for why liberal arts education is still relevant today, even our technocratic society. Like, even when we have the technology underlying that is always, we're always going to have to deal with like the humanistic questions that go along with it. 
They'll never go away. They'll never go away. Look at the questions that technology has raised, like privacy questions. You know, every time I turn on my computer, Amazon or Google, they know all about what I was shopping for yesterday and what my interests are and so on. And, And the free speech questions. I mean, can you post lies and slander on Facebook and nobody, there are no penalties for that. Um, again, these are hard, these are hard questions, but they're going to get the better of us. They're going to overcome us if we don't have a population that's capable of thinking about them and debating them and discussing them in a civil way. And I don't mean this as an idle comment, but in the, in the way that you promote in your podcast, People talking about complicated issues, not yelling and screaming at each other and trying to sell something, but actually trying to think together. And that's what a college should be about at the end of the day. So uh, that's my hope for what the colleges will look like in the future. I mean, so here's a question. I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. Like, say if you're a young person listening to the podcast or you're a parent of a young person and they're looking at which college to attend and you're looking for one that will provide that robust liberal arts education and where you see a good model of that collegial education where there's an interaction between students and then teachers intimate and, and it's edifying. What advice would you give to those people to find the, find that right college? Well, I I would say, I'd say a couple of quick things. First of all, it, it helps to understand that most American students don't have the luxury of making that choice. So what we've been talking about for the whole time together here, which is fine, is a certain stratum of the undergraduate experience, the college that you you get in the family car or maybe in your own car or maybe you take an airplane or a train and you go there and you move in and you live there for several years. That is not the typical experience for most American students who attend underfunded, overcrowded public two-year or four-year institutions often as commuters. So that's one thing that young people should realize. If they're in that position, it's a fortunate position to be in. The second thing I would say, and I find myself saying this a lot when parents come to me because they, you know, I wrote this book about college, so I'm supposed to know something about it. The only thing that really matters is that whichever college you go to is one that you feel good about. It doesn't matter where it is on the prestige ladder. It doesn't matter how many faculty have won the Nobel Prize or have a high rating in the citation index. It doesn't matter if the football team is good or bad, at least not in my view. It only matters that you go there with a feeling of excitement and curiosity and desire to learn. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of institutions in our country that can be that place for you. So one of the really sad things has been to see how the the prestige mongering of the last quarter century and more has distorted the lives of young people who, not just in high school, but in middle school and even in practically in preschool, are under pressure to perform well on standardized tests and get that extracurricular summer experience that they can put on their resume and so on and so forth. All of that is distorting the lives of young people, and none of it has anything to do with what we've been talking about, learning and, and, and growing. So finally, I mean, you know, as to what's the right college? It's, um, it's the college that feels right. And it's going to 
that you know that's going to be an individual choice. In general, it's a good idea to go somewhere where the faculty actually care about the students, right? And that might the degree to which faculty care about students might actually be in inverse proportion in some cases to the prestige of the institution. Because if you're going to a place where the faculty spend most of their time doing research or traveling around the world, telling other people about their research, or they're not, they don't have a lot of time for students. So, you know, you got to feel it out. You got to, and, and, and the process of choosing a college, if you are one of those privileged relatively few who can choose the process itself should be a learning experience should be an educational experience because it should it should require you to ask questions about yourself what do i get excited about what kind of people do i want to be around do i have is my comfort zone large enough that i can go to a place where there're going to be a lot of students who are not like me don't look like me and who come from other parts of the country or the world or do I really need to be in a place where I feel comfortable and people have had a relatively similar experience to my own? There's no right or wrong answer to those questions either. But those are the kinds of questions that you should be asking, not, you know, where does this institution stand in U.S. News and World Report, which is a whole other subject. <laughs> right. And I, I think that another takeaway, too, that at least from my experience, is that no matter where you go, you can create that collegial experience wherever you're at doesn't matter if you're at Harvard or the University of Oklahoma. I mean, I, some of my best memories from my college days at Oklahoma, yeah, I went to the football games. That was fun. But I, I loved, you know, after going, you know, meeting with a bunch of students after class and continuing the discussion that we had about Aristotle's politics. That was great. I loved it. And I, I, I miss it. And I'm, I'm glad I had those experiences. Well, that's the way it should be. And I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. But you know, the best teacher I ever had, whom I think about every day when I teach myself, used to say that the best kind of class is not one that ends, you know, with a conclusion or the answer to a question. The best kind of class is one where the students leave the room wanting to talk more and wanting to think more about what's just been under discussion. And if you can find a college where that's happening, then you're then you're in good shape and take advantage of that and you'll you'll get a lot of value out of your investment in college and I wish to all your listeners that that will be the case for them. Well, Andrew, where can people go to learn more about your work? <laughs> well, I'm my work is a little bit all over the place. I mean, my last <laughs> book is actually a history book about how enslaved persons who ran for freedom in the years before the civil war changed the course of American history and, and how it would be good for all of us to know something more about their history than we tend to do. So, you know, I'd be delighted if your listeners want to go read this little book about college, which is a bit out of date by now, but if they want to read the, my most recent book, the war before the war, which I subtitled, a Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. That would be nice too. And I think they'll find that it's possible to actually read it. Well, Andrew Del Banco, thanks for his time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope we'll get a chance to talk again and you have a great day.
My guest today was Andrew Del Banco. He's the author of the book, College, What It Was, Is, and Should Be. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. If you'd like more information about this book and his work and dig deeper in this topic, go to our show notes at aom.is slash college. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to go to artofmanliness.com where you can check out our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app at Android RS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member. We you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.